Big Ten Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. Welcome to the Sales Influence Podcast, where we talk about finding the why and how people buy. I'm your host, Victor Antonio. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for lending me those ears. And if you're watching this on video, your eyeballs are appreciated as well. Today, I just love saying his first name, Udi Lettergor. Did I get that correct? Udi. You did. Udi Lettergor. You got it, Victor. You got to hit that gore, though, right? You got to hit that letter gore. Yeah. By the way, tell the folks here at the Sales Influence Podcast who you are, a little bit about you. I am the Chief Marketing Officer at Gong, the leading company in revenue intelligence. And our mission is to unlock reality to help people and companies reach their full potential. God, it almost sounded like the Matrix there for a moment. I'll unlock reality. Take the red pill. In your case, take the purple pill. I'll and take go them all. <laughs> By the way, were you responsible or partly responsible? When I talked to uh, Amit, the CEO, you know, like, again, a couple of years ago, I said, you know, who chose the crazy colors of the gong.io website? Who who was the mad person that did that? That that would probably be me, yeah. Okay, was, was that you? So, by, by the way, if you're listening to this or watching this, just pause right now, go look at the site, and then come back, and you'll really understand. When I first looked at your site, I go, what am I looking at with all these weird colors? Like, what was your... Because I thought it was very unique, Udi. You know, joking aside, I said, okay, this is different. This really pops, it stands out. Uh, talk to me about what was your thought process you were putting that together. Yeah, so to, to understand that, you've got to go back to 2018, where we were a much younger startup. And that's when we put our first deliberate visual identity together. And we looked at dozens of B2B websites, and they, they all used what one of my team members called Series A Blue that pairs beautifully with unoffensive grays and white. And that's how most B2B websites look like, especially the young ones. And I think they try to blend in when our approach at Gong has always been to try to lead the pack and not follow. And to do that, to cut through the noise, you've got to be very different. Uh, you can't just choose a nicer blue and gray. You've got to go in a completely different direction. And that's when we decided, uh, working with a, a creative agency, to pick much bolder colors than we'd seen other startups typically use. And we ended up picking purple and pink as our primary colors, like really bold purple and pink, uh, completely uh, unashamed. And we thought that that would help portray our personality. We, we are mavericks. We are leaders. We are innovators. We're, we're not just a little incremental improvement over the state of the art. We, we do things radically different. And so we had to portray that in our visual identity. So we, we pushed that out in 2018. It, it obviously worked because we got a lot of attention and we grew. I can't even count how many times over since 2018. And then uh, last year in late 2021, we did uh, our next iteration on our visual identity three years later after the first one. And we looked at different directions. Some of them involved sort of moving away from the purple and pinks, but they didn't quite feel gong. And at this point, we're like, you know what? We have an established brand. We know who we are. We want to keep those primary colors and we want to evolve on them. And so that's what we did. We, we made our brand more appropriate for the enterprises that we're now serving that four or five years ago we did not. So we had a little bit more wiggle room to be crazy and adolescent back then. <laughs> we're now the more mature Maverick. Uh, that's how no, don't do it. that. Don't go. Don't I know. Go I know. No, don't go mature. We're not. We're not going to become these boring, stuffy grown-ups. No, no fear of okay. that. Not on my watch. Uh, so we kept the the pink and purple. We kept the crazy bulldog. We kept the tongue-in-cheek language and the very approachable human way that we communicate. But we took it up a notch in terms of maturity and sophistication, so that we're not scaring away any of our enterprise buyers who might think, "Oh, this is like a young startup. Come back to us when." You've got all your stuff figured out. Well, we, we do have it figured out, and we wanted to make sure we strike the right balance of those things. Yeah, it, it was interesting, and the, and the reason I would just want to spend a little time on this, because when I first saw the website and the colors, I was somewhat repulsed by it, you know, like, what the, you know, that whole thing, right? But yet, it was like a pattern interrupt because it was so different, right? And, and so walk me through a little bit, just kind of, you know, just pull the curtain back a little bit. You know, for some people out there who are looking at maybe building a new company and, and developing a brand, you know, what were some of the conversations? Did you do some, I don't know, did you did you get, get a focus group and say, hey, look at this, tell me what you think? I mean, pull back the curtain a little bit on the thought process, the pushbacks and, you know. 
Of course. So, so let me tell you first, you're not the only one who, who hated it. Um, one of our executives who, who will remain unnamed, um, Come on, Uli, share the name, share the name. Let's publish. Okay, I'll share with you. Our, our chief customer officer, Iran Aloni, I don't know if you're listening. Yeah. Iran told me about a year after we launched the, that initial branding, he said, you know, I hated it, but I, I didn't really speak up because I thought Udi and Amit know what they're doing because uh, he's not a marketer. But then right. a year later, he said, I, I hated it. But then later I realized that you were right, that this is what we needed. I, he said, I didn't get it. I hated it. And I realized that, that you were right. This is what helped us stand out and be different and become likable because people connected with it. You, you can't connect very well with those series A blues and whites and grays because they're just so unoffensive. And, and here's, here's the point. When you're doing something that nobody truly hates or has strong feelings towards, nobody's truly excited either. That's just how it is, right? If I, if I show you a piece of paper, you can't hate it. There's nothing offensive about it, but you're not gonna be excited about it either. But if I show you something that has character, that has personality, that might not be your cup of tea, it probably means that someone is very excited about it because it is right. their cup of tea. Now, I don't want to create something that everyone hates or, or a large group of people hates, but right. our approach to brand and content and event experiences has always been to create something without being afraid of being polarizing or controversial because those make the best pieces. Those make the absolute best pieces. I'll give you one example mm -hmm. from, from our content world. You know, we have this uh, longstanding uh, uh, content series called Gong Labs, where every few weeks we publish a research piece based on what we've seen in millions and millions of sales calls and emails, what actually works and doesn't work in sales. And a couple of years ago, we published a piece that, as you might imagine, was very controversial. We found that salespeople who use swearing and curse words in their sales calls win up to 8% more deals than those who are. I remember this one, by the way. I remember this one, Udi. I remember this one. There you go. So it reached the right ears. And that created, pardon my French, a total shitstorm on LinkedIn <laughs> when we published that. Um, by the way, somewhere Gary Vaynerchuk was going, yeah, see, I told you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now, he might not be my cup of tea or my style, but he's definitely a character and personality that has many, many followers. And we showed that, and I, I won't give away all the information on how to use swearing correctly. Go look it up on our blog at gong.io slash blog. Look for swearing. You'll find it there. Super cool article. But my phone was off the hook with... Uh, fastcompany.com who ran with the story. Radio stations had me on air talking about our research and where else is it applicable. And when you looked at the discussion threads on, on LinkedIn and Twitter, some people were having a field day going, yeah, that's the shit. And that's what I've been saying. And, yeah. you know, I've been using the F-bomb and dropping the S-word and I'm going to keep doing it now. And I'm going to show this to my boss. And others were going, this is so inappropriate. And how dare you suggest that we swear in our sales calls? And we were just sitting there, you know, rubbing our hands together. Going, this is wonderful. This is exactly what we wanted to create. That, that's a marketer's dream. You've created a conversation where people feel strongly opinionated. I mean, the, the only harsher conversation I can imagine would be to, to, to state my opinion on the Oxford comma, right? I mean, what else could elicit such strong opinions from people? So that's, so that's how we think about creating brand and content and personality that will rub some people the wrong way, not for the sake of rubbing some the wrong way, but every time you're going to be distinct so that some people get excited about you, inevitably you're going to get some people who hate you, and we're okay with that. Yeah. Did Did you know? Did you know that that would cause that type of uh, like controversy, that type of you know reaction? You know, it's hard to to anticipate the exact reaction these things are going to have. We had other pieces we're expecting them to go big, and they were just okay. And we had some people that. It's some pieces that did surprisingly well. Um, we had a few pieces in the past where we compared the sales traits of men versus women, and some of them really got a lot of eyeballs. Others were just okay. I guess the, the topic got a little old, or maybe the findings were not that dramatic. So mm -hmm. you never really, really know. But but we had a good feeling about the swearing ones. Uh, that, yeah, that was kind of a hot topic. I, the the uh, thing about I mean, there was another one you mentioned that that, that was real. By the way, I think the, the swearing one I kind of got. You know what I mean? I kind of go, well, you know, there's this, you understand me. It's almost like a, a full acknowledgement of empathy. I feel your pain. If you if you drop it in the right place, by the way, there is a science to drop in this thing, I believe. Uh, there's another study for you. But what's interesting is that 
one of the things I started liking about your website was that you would come out with these studies. Now, everybody talks about they have a revenue intelligence platform, right? You're like, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, yeah. But you guys, at least if not the only ones, were consistently putting out this type of content. Hey, look what we found. Look what we found. And it's almost like you kept throwing like red meat in the middle of the sales arena. And then, but you were, you weren't doing it for effect. You were doing it. Look what we found. What do you guys think? And I thought that was, that's what really attracted me to the brand. Was that a purposeful strategy? Absolutely. hundred percent. You know, when, when I started a gong, my, my first day was August 1st, 2016. Um, I, I sat with Amit and both of us have a past in content marketing. Amit was a CMO before he became a CEO. And uh, he, he was my mentor during my earlier oh. career days. Yeah, this is our third company together, fun fact. Oh, really, man? All right. By, by the way, Amit is a very cool individual. He is. Absolutely. He is a very so, cool individual. I mean, I, I rarely meet CEOs who are just, they exude cool. He does. He does. Smart man. Very much so. And so I came to him and I said, Amit, uh, I'm going to build a content strategy. Um, what have you got for me? And he said, I've, I've got no content. We, we haven't created anything yet. I, I joined as employee number 13 and marketing number, marketer number one. So it was very, very early days. And I said, I, thank you. I said, I mean, you've got to have something. He said, okay, I've got these five slides that I presented at some conference. And they were insights pulled from Gong data at those early days where I think we only mm -hmm. had like a couple of thousand calls in the database. And they showed that uh, the best salespeople speak about 46% of the time, leaving the rest of the time for the customer to speak. And they showed that the best salespeople ask four to 11 questions on a typical discovery call. And there were three more like that. I said, I mean, that's perfect. I, I took that PowerPoint deck. I saved it as a PDF. I added a cover slide calling it something like the five secrets of the perfect pitch. And I had my first ebook. And it was on that day, my first day at Gong, that Amit and I sat together and said, well, this is going to be the base of our marketing strategy. Because if you go to Amazon, look for books on sales, there are over 100,000 books on sales. I don't know exactly how many because the search function stops at 100,000. They can't count more than that. So there's more than 100,000 books on sales on Amazon. The last thing the world needs is another book based on someone's experience of, I did this and this at Salesforce, or I did this right. and this at Xerox. And so you should all do what I did. That, Amen, Udi. Amen, Udi. Right? Go, Udi. Go, Udi. Thank you. But we thought maybe, just maybe, people would be interested in seeing what the data says actually works in sales. Right. And some of this is going to confirm our intuition. Some of it is going to be counterintuitive, like swearing right. during sales calls. And that was the bet that we made on that day. And all of Gong's content marketing strategy has been guided by that principle from day one. Let's show people without our opinion, what the data says actually work and what doesn't work. And, yeah. and they've been eating it up since then. And it's truly been helpful. And I've kept the content marketing team at Gong separate from the product marketing team all these years to this day for that reason that the content marketing team can continue providing valuable content that is not worried about selling our product. It's not what it's about. You'll hardly ever see Gong mentioned in our content marketing. It's about providing genuine value to sellers yeah. and sales leaders, how to make their teams better, how to train them better, how to make their discovery calls better and their sales calls better and their follow-up better and their deal management better because we know what works and doesn't work because we've seen the data. And once we've created that thought leadership and we've created this community of followers that want to work with the authority in the field, then we've earned the right to offer them a demo of our product and hopefully make them a customer at some point. You're right, Udi. Now, I didn't think about that. That's so, so sneaky. Uh, good sneaky, by the way, because I've never thought about it that, that you never pushed the product. You just put the content out there. I just never thought about that. I just I go, yeah, you're right. Because I mean, that made people. What is this? The, the telltale sign of, of bad content marketing is when the first paragraph starts with something innocuous, like as more and more companies are considering this trend, and then the second paragraph starts with with our product, uh, right. Acne Corp. You can now get a dashboard that does this and does that. No, no. <laughs> That's just lazy. That's just Dude, that is, that's so awesome. It sounds like you've read one of those pieces, right? You know, I probably have. That's what I'm saying. I probably have some, some guilt coming through. They're, they're terrible. They're terrible. You know, you, know what's, you know what should have given you an indication, uh, you know, as far as that this was the right strategy, you know, in hindsight, is always 2020, right? Yep. And remember when the – I don't know if you remember the Challenger book came out. It was 2000, December of 2011, Challenger book comes out, and it says uh, two, two data points that just really put the, the sales world in, in a conniption, which is uh, buyers are 57% into the buying 
cycle. It's 2011, probably mm-hmm. further into it now, obviously. And I remember everybody was just like, rah, just like that red meat you were talking about. And then the five different types of uh, salespeople, you know, everybody has all five predispositions. But when it came out that the relationship salesperson actually did the worst in a complex or simple sale, it's like everybody just had, again, had a conniption. By the way, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. They use conniption, right? <laughs> And so, uh, so I think that, that you were, you were dead on with the data, but I never, I just, I love the fact that you've highlighted something that was obvious to me, but I didn't notice is that you never really pushed the product. You were just saying, all I kept seeing is this crazy website that has this great information. By the way, big shout out to, uh, Chris Orlob and Devin Reed. That's last name. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. They, they led our content team, uh, each of them for about three years. Yeah. Great people. Uh, Chris Orlob, I had, a, I interviewed him as well, man. Just like, geez. That boy goes deep. I mean, he's just great knowledge. He's, he's fantastic and, and doing doing well in his new venture. Yeah. So now, as, as you as you, as you look at this experience you've had with Gong, right? Uh, let's help the folks now listening or watching this, Udi. You know, uh, it looks like we're we're going to be heading into a tough year coming up. Again, that's what we think is going to happen. Nobody really knows. You know, what should companies be doing now? How should they be leveraging marketing? What should their marketing thought leaders be thinking right now to kind of begin? I mean, that's a big question, but how to be what should they do to begin positioning themselves for maybe what may be a tough market? So, you know, when, when we look at past recessions, uh, I'm, I am old enough to, to have worked through the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. I was at our first company with Amit back then. So we've known each other for a good 25 years now. Um, and then uh, I, I worked through the 2008 crash and then uh, a much smaller one that happened during COVID for a couple of quarters. And we've seen kind of the same patterns happen again and again. The best companies who emerge thriving as winners out of these recessions are the ones that adapted the most quickly to what the market was looking to buy during that period. The companies that did not do well were the companies that took too long to adapt. And and Mm -hmm. you see this not just in recessions, right? Enough to mention companies like Blockbuster and Kodak Mm -hmm. to to see what dying companies look like when they fail to adapt quickly. But there were many winning companies that came out of crises like this. Uh, everything from uh, Uber to Airbnb came out of uh, crises like these because they adapted very quickly to give customers what they were looking for. And we managed to do this during COVID. Gong did not exist uh, in the previous uh, recessions, but we did this during COVID. We're doing it now. We're continuing to grow very fast compared to the industry. And we're looking, I'll give you one pa- tactical example to see what I mean. So. Sure. A year ago, if you were to attend a Gong sales pitch, uh, one of the first things you'd hear was, we can help you onboard all your new salespeople much faster, like at half the, the, mm-hmm. the time that you normally uh, onboard them. But if you take a sales demo from Gong now, you won't hear that in the sales pitch because guess what? Almost nobody is onboarding new salespeople right now. Everyone's on a hiring freeze or laying off people. What they're looking to do now is get more out of less and work on the quality and the productivity of their salespeople. So that is where we shifted our messaging. And that's what's allowing us to continue to sell at a time like this. Now, there's probably a thousand micro changes like that that you have to make across your product, your website, your marketing materials, your sales pitch, your customer success QBRs with your customers. You want to go through all that inventory and see what needs to quickly shift to make sure that we're still providing the value that our customers need from us right now. Because if you don't do that, your customer's CFO is gonna audit all their tech stack and gonna say, oh, uh, what, what are we using this stuff for? Oh, we bought it for onboarding sales reps. Well, we're not onboarding any sales reps in the next year. That can go and then move on down the list. So you wanna stay in that must have bucket and not be put into the nice to have bucket. And it's hard, right? It, some, some, some customers you're gonna lose because it's inevitable. If, if some of your customers are going out of business or laying off people, they need fewer licenses. That's just a fact of life you're gonna to have to deal with. But a lot of the customer churn and definitely um, gaining new business is in your control. If you can prove that you are one of those few valuable things that your customer must have right now, then you will get to stay in there. And yeah. the way you show that is maybe, maybe different from the way you showed it a year ago, right? Look at Airbnb, uh, up until COVID, they, they, were, they were selling uh, basically timeshares uh, on, mm-hmm. on other people's houses, but then travel stopped. So within a few short months, they pivoted into virtual experiences and got back on the horse and got revenue flowing again until people started traveling again. So for two years, they were selling 
virtual experiences. Other companies are not doing as well because they did not adapt that that well to, to all the restrictions around hospitality and restaurants. And, you know, some of the restaurants quickly shifted to uh, Michelin restaurants shifted to home deliveries, which they never fathomed doing before COVID, but that was their only way to stay alive. So it's the ones who adapt the most quickly that, that are going to thrive through this recession, just like all the others. I love, I love your example. I love your tech. Udi, I'm starting to like you, man. I'm starting to like you. I think I, start, I, think I like hey. you. I, I really like marketing people. But I, you, me and you. Uh, the, the, you know, by the way, that, that simple example of, you know, the voice of the customer type of thing where you listen, you shift it from onboarding to, hey, how do you, I don't know, gain new clients, whatever it may be, whatever that messaging is, how do you switch that? So when somebody looks, as you say, the example you gave is just so perfect. When somebody looks at the tech stack, they go, why are we using that? And by changing the messaging very quickly, again, you you, you kind of increase your retention when it comes to subscriptions. I love that. Let, let me ask you a question, and, and this is kind of a little left field, but I, th- I think you might be able to handle it. What have you done? Because I, I get this question a lot, and I don't have a great answer for it, so I'm hoping you can provide me with some insight. You know, you have customers who maybe stopped using Gong, right? <clears throat> very few. But let's say some customers stopped using Gong. And do you ever look at let me ask the broad question. Do you have any reactivation strategies or re-engagement strategies to bring them back in? Because, you know, as I look at the market, <clears throat> you know that I can go out and try to gain new clients. That's hard today, right? Yep. I can upsell and cross-sell. Maybe I can do that. But the two strategies I think that you're going to help me out here is you talked about one, helping with retention, shifting your message, adapting. Got that. But the reactivation piece, nobody really, really talks about. People who stop buying, how do you bring them back in? Yeah. So, so the ones, are you talking specifically at ones who like shifted to a different solution and then we, we brought them back? It, it could be one or two, right? They shifted to another solution or simply said, you know what? I don't think it's worth paying that subscription anymore. Yeah. So there's various reasons why they stopped. I'm wondering from your, just the thought process, what have you done or how would you start bringing people back in the fold depending on whatever reason they yep. have? Yep. So, so we, we, we regularly regain customers that either dropped off at some point or. Mm-hmm more typically moved to a different solution because they were very price sensitive and Gong being the gold standard in revenue intelligence um, does not come as cheap as some of the other solutions out there. Correct. And so let me touch on that case first because we literally bring dozens of those every every quarter that shift back to Gong. So we listen to those customers and uh, many times we send a third-party company to do what's known in the industry as a win-loss analysis where they just call them and say, hey, we know you were a Gong customer. We were engaged by Gong to just ask you a few questions. We're not trying to sell you anything so you can let your guards down. We're, we don't work for Gong. We're not salespeople. We just want to ask you a few questions about what made you shift to another solution and how's it going. And with those armed with those learnings, we can go to those customers who we think we can get back. I'll give you an example. Um, maybe Maybe we repackaged or repriced something that was too expensive for them in the past. And that's what they shared with the interviewer saying, hey, it was just too expensive. And I, I found a basic solution for my needs. And while it's not as good as Gong, it was half the price. So I decided to switch to that. Well, now we might have a comparable basic solution that's still better than the competition, but is priced much more comfortably and, and affordably. So we'll, we'll offer that. Uh, more typically, we hear that things that other solutions presented to be at, at face value, very similar to Gong, they might name the feature or the product in a very similar way. Once the customer started using it and could no longer be fooled with smoke and mirrors, but actually start using it, they suddenly saw, oh, what do you mean you don't have this feature? But I, I have this in Gong. You don't have that? No, we're still working on it. It's still in, in the roadmap. And then they, they try to do something else that they could do with one click in Gong and now take seven clicks to get to that same workflow in another product. Like, wow, I wish I checked that before I switch products. And then you, you collect a list of these things that are great in Gong or in whatever product you're selling, and maybe not so great with your competing solutions. And you share those frustrations or ask about them to the customers and then give them an offer they can't refuse. So, you know, it could be something like this. Uh, I know you, you were using Gong in the past, and I believe you switched to evilcorp.com. And uh, typically what we hear from Evil Corp's customers is that they uh, they come across these three problems. Have you come across any of these at all? And then they'll usually go, oh my gosh, yes. It's like you've been reading my mind. I can't stand how clunky this process is and I hate their UI. And, you know, they said they could do so-and-so, but really it's it's a 
it's a hollow shell once you go under the hood. Uh, we'd love to get Gong back, but but we still found it to be difficult to to afford. What can you do for us? And then we'll get creative and come come with some terms that they can probably afford right now and, and justify the value. We're, we're never going to compete on price. We're never, never, ever the cheapest solution unless that is your positioning, right? Because when you go to market, the, the two main branches you need to pick are between are either one, I'm going to be better and, th- and then you better be able to articulate and demonstrate how you're better so you could charge more or I'm going to be cheaper. So I don't have to be better. You, you're not expected to be both. Right. It's kind of a dream come true. If you're both better and cheaper, there's not many solutions like that. Like you can buy a Tesla or you can buy a Toyota. You expect one to be better and one to be cheaper. You don't often expect them both to be in the same product. So if you're better, be ready to articulate and demonstrate how you're better so you can charge more. If you're cheaper, you can say, hey, I've got 80 percent of the features of the leading product, but I cost half as much. That's the deal you're getting. So you're going to have a market for price conscious customers and you're going to have a market for the quality premium product. Um, you can't do both, really. Companies who have tried usually fail. You can't do both. Right. You can't serve two masters in this case. You really no, can't. No, because if, if you're better, then why aren't you charging more? That That's suspicious. You're telling me you're better, but you're charging half as much as the, the other guys? What, what's what's the story with that? Right. Um, so so you've got to be consistent and, and believable. And then if you want to be the the cost leader and say, hey, we're, we're just going to be a copycat version of like, you know, the poor man's version of Gong with 80% of the feature, but cost half as much. There's a market for that. There, there is a market for that. Um, so so that's that's a strategy that, that we, we typically use. We collect the experiences of those unfortunate folks who have switched to another product because they thought they were getting a better deal or they had to temporarily shift. And then a year later, once their uh, subscription is about to expire, they will they will come back if we give them the, the right reasons and, and show them how we're solving the current pains that they're having. I want to ask you a question. Uh, by the way, thank you. That was a great answer, by the way. the uh, So I just switched over. This is just a personal example, and I just thought about this. I just switched over from Comcast to AT&T. AT&T now offers fiber optic to the home. Uh, you know, it was an easy switch over, a solution or a decision, rather. But what's interesting is that Comcast decided to, after a two-year contract was almost over, decided like 30 days before, because the trigger was there, right? It's 30 days before that they're going to give me 50% off, whatever percentage it was, right? But by that time, my brain had already started moving towards another solution, which is the AT&T. My question to you is, if you found this in your data, that we shouldn't wait till the last minute before somebody cancels a subscription. Maybe that that seeding should start a couple of months or three months beforehand. What, do, what are your thoughts on that? hundred percent. So there, there's... There's a few ways that we do that. And here I'm speaking on, on our own experience at Gong. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that we've looked at aggregate data from, although it's a really interesting mm-hmm. question to look at. I don't know that we've looked at that aggregate data across our, our mm-hmm. other companies looking using Gong. But here at Gong, here are a few things that we do. You know, when when especially if this is a large deal that you don't want to have to renegotiate in a year from now, try to get a multi-year deal, right? You said you had a two-year contract. So mm-hmm. they, they did something right, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because then they... There's no negotiation after year one. I mean, there are extreme cases, you know, if you didn't provide the value mm-hmm. and if they're going out of business, they might come and ask for concessions, but you've got the upper hand because they've signed a two-year deal. So when you can get a two or even three-year deal, that's yeah. always the better way to, to do things. And you need to, to build that muscle in the sales team because it usually means slightly longer negotiation. Um, you've got to work that out with the compensation of the salesperson. Well, what happens if they don't continue the second year and all that sort of stuff? But it's well worth working that out and getting a longer deal so that you can focus on other deals in a year and not renegotiating the ones that you just signed. The second thing is most most SaaS products operate on a, on a yearly subscription. So rather than waiting 30 days before, which is typically when customer already knows if they're going to renew or not mm-hmm. or pick a different option, we're now working to get in touch with customers 90 days before renewal. So in the first month of the quarter before renewal, that's when we want to know, are they considering not renewing? Then what do we do about it and leave ourselves some wiggle room to fix the problem? Yes. Whether it's a pricing or packaging or show the value or adapt to my current needs, but you don't want to do that in the last 30 days. That's a really bad practice. Well, I was surprised it's Comcast, right? It's a big company. I'm like, how do you not know this? This is the bad idea to wait to the last minute, so to speak. And so you're seeing 90 days out is probably yeah, 90 days is, is a much better time to do this. And look, the, the 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 simple truth is, if you keep the customer happy all year long, then uh, renewal should not be a question, right? 
if you keep the customer happy all year long, you know, short of a, a force majeure, like we're laying off half the employees, so we're not going to need all the licenses, which you can't do much about. Um, if you keep them happy and you're engaged with them throughout the year, you should know that they're happy. We, we regularly run NPS surveys. We collect reviews on review sites like G2, and we do win-loss analyses to, to talk to even happy customers. How can we make you happier? What made you happy in the first place? What, what do we need to do to keep you on? You've got to ask these questions. By the time you wait to hear bad news, it's usually too late to fix it, right? If, you're, yeah. if you haven't talked to your customer all year and you talk to them 30 days before renewal and they've already made other plans, it's going to be really hard to change their mind. Well, you did your win-loss analysis uh, in the example you mentioned earlier about retention. The, you know, how big is that sample size typically? Like, what's your process? I mean, you know, Victor, we go after 100, you know, customers. You know, what do you batch them? We do it every 30 days, every 90 days. What's we, your process? We, we probably do this every 90 days, and we try to go for at least a few dozens so we can get yeah. meaningful data. Like if you're talking to 10 customers, even 15, and you've got like, you know, five different reasons all over the place, you don't know how representative they are of reality. Ideally, uh, I mean, we, we run the NPS survey to every single one of our users so uh, right. that, that meet basic criteria. So, so that, that we get a lot of data from. But the, the really in-depth win-loss analysis, we try to do on, on data sets of dozens at a time to make sure that we can cluster what they're happy about, what they're not as happy about, and so we can do something about it. Because if, if you talk to 10 people and you get 10 different opinions, you're probably not going to be able to focus on fixing 10 different things. But if you talk to 50 and you see that three reasons came up more than anything else, then you're going to focus on those three. And you, you, most of these, you know, you got the MPS survey, but the other, when we're talking about win-loss data is actual conversations with yes. the income. Yes, that, that is. So, so there are platforms today, and we're piloting one of those as well um, to get more detailed information that you would get on an NPS survey, but not quite as detailed as you would get with a human survey. Um, right. So we're thinking of sort of tiering our win-loss analysis, doing a, a smaller set of a few dozens that we can actually get humans to talk to because that does require scheduling and their consent and, and setting up the time and all of that. And then a larger database asking a, a shorter set of questions that can be done uh, like an online survey that's a little bit longer than an NPS survey. So instead of asking right. two questions, you can ask 10 questions maybe. So that will still give you more data that can be valuable, but not the complete depth and, and follow-up and, and question routing that, that and branching that you can get with a human interview. I love that because, all right, so we talked retention, we talked re-engagement. Uh, so let's talk client acquisition. Let's say I'm trying to get new customers. I'm a company, again, looking towards the new year, rough water's coming our way. What should I be doing from a marketing standpoint? What has Gong done that says, you know, Victor, these things seem to work for us and it might provide some hint for other companies to maybe consider? So I would first start with a, a TAM analysis of looking, uh, TAM being target addressable market, looking at which industries or segments or geographies or company sizes, depending on how you segment your market, which are least impacted by this downturn and go to them first. If, if you remember COVID, the most impacted companies were hospitality and travel. So those were the yeah. worst clients to try to sell to. Hmm. Move on. Uh, there were other sectors that were actually doing well. Even now, cybersecurity is doing really well. Um, manufacturing, um, logistics are doing really well right now. Go to them. They're, they're buying. They're, their businesses are booming. Um, so start with that. And then uh, within the segments that you are selling to, Again, give them what they need right now. And you've got to be very attuned to what they are looking for right now, which might not be how you're currently describing your products. If they go to your website and they don't recognize their need there, they're not going to buy from you right now. So you have to make sure that, A, you're focusing on, on the ones that are still doing well despite the economy, and then make sure that you're speaking their language. And if they're looking to solve problem X, don't speak about problem Y. Speak about problem X and make sure you're solving that for them. You know, I, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Marcus Sheridan. Uh, he wrote a great book, uh, They Ask, You Answer, right? Customer asks, you answer. And he built his whole content strategy around the questions they have. And you see a lot of companies, I mean, this sounds like almost like slap your forehead. This is too obvious, right, Udi? No, no, but, yeah. but it works. It's, it's, it's It works. A lot of companies don't do that. Uh, one, why don't they do that? Or maybe I'm wrong and I, I'm, I'm looking at the wrong, through the wrong lens. But I'm also realizing that a lot of companies have a hard time changing when they, their marketing isn't working. They just hold on. Do you know what I mean? You've had to create this, 
and again, Amit has probably you know been your partner in crime. Mm-hmm. Says, yeah, we can we can kind of do a right turn in terms of how we approach this, and far as the uniqueness of Gong. But how would you advise, you know, content marketers or marketing departments in general to kind of be honest with themselves? And if they have to make a right turn, you know, how do you get the rest of the leaders on board to say we need to start doing something different because the market's shifting? Um, you, you have to speak the language of data. If if you are trying to change something that you think is not working, show the data. Data is, is more difficult to argue with than opinions are, right? We, we have a saying at Gong, goodbye opinions, hello reality. Show me show me reality. Show me what's really happening. And that, that explains the, Gong, the success of the Gong Labs data series and it explains our success in many other areas. We don't, we don't assume things because you and I can argue about our favorite color or our favorite wine, but we shouldn't be able to argue about the conversion of a certain headline in an ad or on a, on a web page. If, uh, you know, my, my CEO says this all the time, he says, look, I have some ideas, but my opinion doesn't matter if you have data to disprove it. So he came up with a messaging idea. We tried it. I came back and said, I mean, it sucked. It really didn't work. I, I dropped it. I went back yeah. to the old messaging and I, and I got a 30% lift. So he said, there you go. Shows you how much I know. He said, my, none of our opinions matter. I mean, right. we have to hypothesize on what we think is going to work and what's going to appeal to the psyche of, of, of our buyers, especially in a time like this. And sometimes we're going to get it wrong, but no company has enough traffic and audience. I'm talking about even Amazon don't have enough traffic on the website to try every possible headline in the universe. There are just too many of them. So you've got to hypothesize and say, I've got these two, three, 30 ideas. I'm going to go try them. And then very quickly, you'll see a few of them bubble up to the top. Oh, these people are clicking on because they get it. It's like Mm -hmm. you're anticipating their questions and you're answering them as they keep flowing. The best websites feel like you read something that triggers a question. You keep scrolling. That question is answered. Triggers another question. You keep scrolling. Boom, that question is answered. And it's really hard to achieve, really hard to achieve. And you can see where people are dropping off, right? We all have the Google Analytics and and other fancier tools to see where people are dropping off, how long they're staying on the website, what percentage of them are converting or reading additional pages or taking the call to action that we offered. And if they're not, then our offer is not working, then we need to change it. It doesn't matter if the CEO is in love with it, I'm gonna kill it, not the CEO, I'm gonna kill the offer. And I'm going exactly. to try a new one. And if I find someone, something that's working that, you know, doesn't go grossly against our brand or offends our audience, I'm going to keep it. What are, what are some of the you, – you, you mentioned tools like Google Analytics and others. What are some of the KPIs you look at beyond the vanity metrics, you know, how many people visit the sites, unique visitors? What are some vanity uh, – uh, real metrics that you go, you know, these are signals that either we're on the right track or uh, uh, just going in the wrong direction. What are some things you look for? So I'll start at the end. The, the currency that marketing is measured on at Gong, which we believe is, is the right balance, mm-hmm. is sales qualified opportunities and sales qualified leads. These are we use in our in our uh, down market or, or lower market segments. We use SQLs in our enterprise business unit. We use uh, SAOs of sales accepted opportunities because we want a salesperson to qualify that and say, yes, this is an opportunity I believe I should chase. There's business there. So marketing doesn't get to grade itself. I've, I've been on, I've heard teams that um, grade themselves on MQLs or, or things that marketing makes up. And I can create one or a million depending on what target you set for me, but I don't know that that's going to drive the right business. But if you let the salespeople qualify and give points to marketing for only the opportunities they can actually sell to, then you have much better alignment. So that's where that's the end goal to, to achieve. Now we reverse engineer that and say, okay, how do we create those SQLs and SAOs? Well, they come from MQLs and MQLs come from certain audiences that come with certain intent. And there's a certain mix of inbound and outbound and, and it gets more complicated as you go into the weeds of it, especially when you try doing this at scale across geographies, across different market segments. So, so we have those targets. Some of the leading indicators that we use are, if we have a new messaging idea, one of the fastest ways of checking that is a on dedicated landing pages and on digital ads because i can run ads for let's say three four five days on linkedin or or one of the other channels that i use and i can compare the click-through rate on that and on the related landing page to other campaigns that i know have done well in the past so if this one is doing at least as well as the best ones that i've had i know oh this is worth refining if it's doing like really, really poorly compared to the benchmarks that I have, 
then I'm probably going to kill it and, and move on. So th those are some early indicators that we use to try out new messaging. It's way faster than doing something organic, like changing your website and then waiting back and seeing for three months what happens. Ain't nobody got time for that long experiment in, in a time like this. No, I love that, man. I, you're, you're a data guy, which is good. Um, I want you to tell me, as we close this out, t tell me a story about a customer, client, that, you know, was resistant to use Gong. Because I'm, I'm a Gong fan, man. I, I really am. You know, I, I, I say that without hesitation. Just love your company. I love everything about your company. Uh, tell me about a company who kind of pushed back, like, nah, don't want to use you guys. And then it was a wonderful turnaround story to explain how that turnaround happened. In other words, how were they able to leverage Gong to be successful? Uh, one of the favorites that comes to mind is a, a Canadian company called Touch Bistro. And they, they sell point-of-sale hardware and software to the restaurant industry. Okay. And they've been a long-time Gong customer. And like most Gong implementations, in the first days, uh, a lot of reps, especially of, of a certain generation or, or seasoned sales reps, they will they will say, no, what, what, what is this now? You're recording my calls. You don't trust me. You want to micromanage me. By the way, you're, you're so polite the way you set that up. You know, some of them are not this generation. These old bastards who basically <laughs> don't want to use new technology. Let me just be blunt, Udi, okay? <laughs> you can say that. Um, no, but it, it, is, it, is, it, it is partly a generational thing, right? Um, where, where the young folks are used to working with all this technology and having every communication that they do through a company phone or computer recorded, whereas the older generation, especially field sales, they're like, they're just used to doing their thing. They're used to having a lot of autonomy and suddenly they bring in this technology and like, what, what's up with that? And so we always, or not always, but we often see that uh, resistance in the early days. If, if you go to Gong reviews on a website like G2, where we've accumulated thousands and thousands of reviews, so many of them start with the rep admitting, I initially had my resistance and apprehension about being recorded and I hated it, but then came the switch. So here's what happened at, at Touch Bistro. After just a few weeks of using Gong, they discovered that up until that point, they had two approaches to selling their system. Uh, the system comes on the sort of iPad hardware with, with their proprietary, proprietary software. Some of the salespeople were focusing on the proprietary software when they were demonstrating the product. Other salespeople started with the hardware. And they never really knew which approach was better. So they gave the sales reps artistic freedom to choose whatever they want. And using Gong, Gong quickly found that the salespeople who were leading with the software features were outselling the folks leading with the hardware features by an astonishing like 30% higher win rate. Something really? like really? unmistakable. I would have thought the opposite. No, 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 no. Yeah, interesting. And again, your opinion doesn't matter and neither does mine. Right. That's the beauty of it. Now, Gong doesn't understand hardware or software, it just looked at the patterns of all the salespeople on Touch Bistro's team and connected to the CRM and said, well, I see these folks are closing a lot of deals and these folks are at the bottom of the list. They're not closing that many deals. And then it starts reverse engineering their call patterns to see what are these folks saying that those are not or what are mm -hmm. the bottom performers saying that top performers are not. And then it starts emerging these insights. And with just a few short weeks, uh, Paul Snelson, he's the SVP of sales at Touch Bistro, he got this report saying, look, Gong surfaced that the salespeople across teams who lead with software are outselling by 30% the folks across the teams who are leading with hardware. So Paul scratched his head and said, wow, that's, that's amazing. He went and retrained the team to all focus on software and boom, the entire team's win ratio went up by 15%. And that, that's a story. That's the story I'm sharing yeah. with permission. He's he's shared it yeah. on stage with us and, and done a beautiful case study. But that that's a typical journey of a Gong customer of coming in with I'm not really sure what this is going to do, um, but then they they see the results really really quickly and they get these insights. Some of them to questions that they didn't even know how to how to ask themselves, and many times the answer will be surprising. Yeah. I Man, that's a great example. Uh, I, I want to tell you about a company that I worked with that used Gong, and they failed. It was a fail. And I, I want to get your thoughts on this one because I thought it was interesting. By the way, Gong didn't fail them. And th here was the point. Um, they brought me as a consultant. They were using Gong, right? And I noticed something that the, the leader, I'll call it the VP of sales, didn't really believe in the product. Just told their salespeople, I need you to use this. 
And I remember asking him, I said, is there somebody dedicated to really looking at the data, figuring out what, you know, words are being used, really analyzing what Gong is giving you? And he says, yeah, we kind of have one person working on it part-time. And it just, at the end, fast forward the movie, it just, they never really used it, right? Wound up canceling after a year or so, whatever it was. And I, and I thought to myself, I said, the, the product didn't fail them. It was the thought leadership pushing it down that failed them. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that because I think sometimes we want, we, we think by throwing gong at the, at the problem, it solves everything. But it really has to be a mindset that goes with that in order for this stuff to work. And I wanted you to, I guess, just kind of, you know, end this podcast on that note, what thought leaders need to be doing if they want to use tools like this to be successful. So, so we've seen the story happen a million times, not only with gongs, but, but, but with other tools as well. And, and here's, here's how the story usually plays out. You know, uh, gong has had massive success very quickly because you just switch it on. Nobody else needs to lift a finger. The reps don't change anything about how they work. They, they use the same email and Zoom and, and telephone to make their calls and have their conversations. And we start gently pushing insights and value their way. Now, our best deployments are where the customer intentionally built a workflow around the new capabilities that Gong gave them. I'll give you an example. There are companies where the frontline managers changed their one-on-ones with their salespeople to review their Gong data and look at the deals board and say, hey, instead of me asking you, what's up with that deal? And what's up with that deal? And what's up with that deal? I built this deal board in Gong, took me a few minutes, I saw all the information, so I don't need to grill you about the facts, but here's some questions like, it shows me that you haven't been in touch with this buyer in three weeks, yet the deal is still in commit for this quarter. So how are you expecting to close that or, or what are you gonna do to, to close that? And then I'm looking at this deal and it seems like that's also in commit, but you haven't been talking to procurement late yet. So when are you planning on contacting them? And then they work gone into the flow of either the one-on-one calls yeah. Uh, at one company, we heard we heard about what they called a gong party. So once a week, they got the folks in the office together with pizza and a beer, and they picked one sales call from one of the salespeople, and they dissected it. They played the sales call. They stopped every few, few seconds, and they had folks give feedback on what was great, what could have been done better, and they all learned from that. And then next right. week's call, right. you know, is going to be better because they already have learnings from last week. So these are just a few ideas uh, most recently, you know, four months ago, we launched our Gong Forecast product, which is the first reality-based forecasting tool that helps sales team accurately forecast how the quarter or the year is going to end based on what's actually happening in every deal and not just a mathematical model that nobody understands. And so we, we sold over 100 units of the product in the first 100 days that we released the product. Teams mm-hmm. are, are loving it. And now they're getting a, a, a realistic view of how the quarter is going to end. Now, there's no way that this will happen without commitment from either sales ops or sales leadership to say, this is how we forecast at company Acme now. Right. So you need that leadership commitment to make any tool work. There, there are no magical tools out there that are going to do your work for you. None. And, and Gong is not exempt from that. So right. we do provide a ton of value, even if you just switch it on and do nothing. But as the company becomes more complex and bigger and the reps and frontline managers are waiting for cues from senior leadership on how we do things here, working Gong or any other technology into a workflow to say, this is how we now forecast. This is how we do deal reviews or pipeline reviews. This is how we're going to end the quarter. That's how you get the most value out of Gong and any other tool, really. Oh, I love that. Udi, are you going to write a book soon? You know, I, I wrote one. You can see it behind me. I wrote no, one on, on. Did you write a book? I did. I did. It's 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 a really old one. I, I published it, I think, in 2015 about uh, the 50 secrets of trade show success. Uh, okay. I should probably update it to the new uh, wave of virtual and hybrid events. So those right, are not right. accounted for there yet. But but one day I might write another one. No, I, you know, this. I mean, everything we've talked about today. I'm just sitting there. I could, dude, I could just keep listening to you. And I'm not just trying to be polite here. I'm like. Okay, because it's 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 very tactical, practical, but you can then see how the theory is applied around it and how the tools work. And I love that, man. Udi, let these people know on this podcast, where can they find out more information about you? Obviously at Gong, but any place else where they can find out about you. So, yeah, if, if you're not already using uh, Gong's revenue intelligence, you should definitely go to gong.io. Either read our insightful blogs. There are hundreds of them. They're completely free of charge. 
go read them. I encourage you to do that or ask for a demo if you want to see how your sales team could be performing better and getting more out of the resources you have right now. I'm personally on LinkedIn. There's only one Udi Lettergore there. I swear I checked. So mm-hmm. feel free to connect me with me there. And I've really enjoyed our conversation today, Victor. Thanks for having me. Same here. And by the way, I want to congratulate you. I found when I, when I did a little research on you, I, I see that you're a Forbes contributor. And some of the articles you contributed were great, man. Great reading. So congratulations. And I should have asked this obvious question. Where's your name from? So my first name, Udi, that's a Hebrew name. It's usually an abbreviation of uh, one of the biblical names, Ehud or Ohad. Don't ask me mm-hmm. how that became Udi, but it does. <laughs> All right. Uh, but but I'm actually Udi in my birth certificate. And then my last name is actually a, an interesting quick story. Um, when I met my husband uh, mm-hmm. over 16 years ago, the yesterday was our anniversary. So we've been together. Congratulations, for years. man. Thank you. How many years? Uh, 16. Okay. Wow. 16 years. And uh, both of us had impossibly long and jaw-breaking Ashkenazi Jew last names. So I was letterer and he was Vittergore and we were thinking about our future children. They're going to have it rough enough without having to carry those two long right. Ashkenazi names, letterer hyphen Vittergore. So we decided yeah. probably they'd be 12 before they even knew how to spell them. So we decided <laughs> um, to take half of my last name, half of his last name and meld them together to create that's Lettergore. That's and that's how, that's how we created Lettergore. And that's why we're the only Lettergores. Um, that is funny, man. By the way, we're brothers. I just realized this. So I did my DNA test, 23andMe. Yep. 1.2% Ashkenazi Jew. There you go. Right here, man. Right here, man. You, you could be a letterer or a Vittergore. Who knows? <laughs> Victor Lettergore. No, that, we won't go there. But anyway, Udi, thank you for being on the Sales Influence Podcast. For those of you who are listening, watching, leave me some feedback on iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, wherever you're listening. Check out Udi online. Go to gong.io. you got to look at some of these studies and some of the reports. They're fantastic. And after that, check out the Sales Velocity Academy. On that note, this is Victor Antonio always reminding you, selling ain't hard when you use gong and you know how. Take care. Take care, everyone. Big Ten Can is the world's leading sales learning and enablement platform that delivers the onboarding and training, preparation, coaching, customer engagement, and follow-up and insights that modern businesses need to win. 